God is very concerned with your opinion on life's most important questions. You may find that shocking, that God cares about your opinion. God is very concerned about your opinion because your opinion is determinative of your relationship with God. Let me see if I can unpack this for you. My opinion of you will ultimately determine my relationship with you. I mean, Eric, if I think you're a jerk, we're not going to hang out. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? How you feel about someone, the conclusions you draw determine how you approach and, and interact with people. Uh, conversely, what you think about me will define your relationship with me. It becomes the, the foundation for any relationship we might have. With that in mind, your, your, your opinion of Jesus will determine your relationship with God. Getting Jesus right is the door to a relationship with God. Uh, my parents are Christians. I think most of you uh, who hang out here know that. I know you may have met her. You may not know that. I don't know. Um, just kidding, Mom. Uh, my parents are Christians, so I grew up with this <clears throat> positive influence about Jesus Christ in the home and in my life, uh, you know, uh, my whole life. It's just completely foundational for me. But as you develop biologically, mentally, socially, emotionally, as a human being, as you develop, uh, you know, I came to a place in my life where I had to answer certain questions for myself. What my mom and dad believed about Jesus Christ and about God, that's great. But I'm uh, my own human being. And at some point, I have to make my own decisions about Jesus Christ. And my own opinions about who Jesus is are being formed. And I had to decide at some point in my life, uh, do I believe in Jesus Christ? Do I believe who the Bible is declaring him to be? Will I put my trust in Jesus Christ? Will I receive him as the Lord and the authority over my life? Now, you may be able to relate. You may not be able to relate. I don't know what type of home you grew up in, but whether you grew up in a positive Christian influence or not, you do understand this morning that everyone, each of us, must develop our own opinions about Jesus Christ. Now, that's part of what parenting's about, understanding that your children are going to make their own, draw their own conclusions, and that's why it's so important to guide their life to the right conclusions. Everyone has to develop their own opinions of Jesus, his church, uh, what the meaning of life is. Maybe some of you are still trying to figure, maybe you've got Jesus right, and you're still trying to figure out how, what, what, what are my opinions about the church, and, and, and how do I find the real meaning of life. That's sometimes a journey that adults still struggle with. We'll face many questions of significance in our lives. You know, for you guys, it's like, where am I going to go to university? You know, who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? Uh, Brenna, you were faced with the question of, okay, now where will I live? I can go teach anywhere in, in the world. Literally, in the world, not just the United States. In the world, I can go teach. Where will I live? And of course, you chose the promised land. You came right back home here. 
uh, God's country at where will I live? What career will I pursue? What decisions will I make to set my life uh, in its course? But of all the questions that we humans can ask, the most important question is what we take as our thesis question this morning. And it's this question, in your opinion, who is Jesus? It's probably the most important question you'll ever be asked in your life. In your opinion, who is Jesus? That sets up Matthew chapter number 16. I'm going to walk you through the chapter as quick as I can. Matthew 16, 1. When the chapter opens, this is what we read. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. <sighs> Seriously? The religious leaders see themselves as God's representatives on earth. And no religious activity can happen unless they have approved it and unless they have authorized it. They have not approved nor authorized the activity of John the Baptist and subsequently Jesus and his disciples. The people are scared of the religious authorities. They have their own army. Jesus is not scared of the religious authorities and he is to their face calling them serpents, snakes, and tombs full of bones. That's what he's calling them. Now they come to Jesus testing him and say, we want to see another sign. Okay, so let me get this right. 731 miracles didn't convince you? So number 732 will put you over the line now? Is that really what you're saying to Jesus? Jesus sees right through that. He says, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Matthew 16, 4, watch this. A wicked and adulterous, now this doesn't mean committing adultery against your spouse. This means spiritual adultery. It means you're not faithful to God. So let me just throw it out there. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but there will no sign be given it except this one. There will be a sign, but not the one you want. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Oh, does anybody remember the story of Jonah? A guy who was for three days and then back from the dead after three days. There will no sign be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. Take that. And Jesus left and went away. You say, what just happened? I'll tell you what just happened. <laughs> Jesus just dismissed them, okay, and turned his back and walked away. Don't you know where the religious authorities said, all right, listen, you're not going to get, well, okay, you will get a sign. But it's not the sign you want. You want me to heal somebody. You want me to do one of those kind of miracles right here, like magic for you. God's not like your bellhop and you ring a bell and he comes and bling, give you. It's not a genie in a bottle where you rub the lamp. You've got a complete misunderstanding of who God is. So no, a wicked generation is wanting God to be treated. Treat God like a genie. That's not what's going to happen. But I tell you what, you will get a sign, but it's not the sign you want. You will get a sign. My resurrection will be the ultimate proof of my claims and my true identity. The resurrection will be the definitive validation of my claim to be, quote, the Son of Man. Now, I want to teach you something. Very important about biblical language, but I've been scolded because I've been going along the last few weeks, so I can't. 
Uh, but I need to teach you something about biblical language, but I can't. I'm handcuffed by the wickedness of the crowd. So uh, here's my promise to you. I don't have time for a thorough lesson on biblical language right now. Uh, Jeremy, are you in the room? Are you smoking? All right, here you are. Hey, this week, let's cut a podcast on biblical language. I've got, just remind me. So Tuesday, we'll cut a podcast. We'll release it later in the week. And uh, it'll explain everything that I don't have time to explain right now, okay? Here's the Cliff Notes version that'll just make you scratch your head, okay? I want to show you two different phrases. Son of God and Son of Man. These are both statements, titles, phrases that you see in the, in the scriptures. What I want you to know, and I'll explain later this week, is these two sayings that are found in the Bible mean the opposite of what you think they mean. Okay? Now, I'll, I'll explain it all. Take me an hour later this week. They mean the opposite of what you think they mean. Son of God is actually a title for a person, a human, who has a relationship with God. Son of man actually means God. In biblical language, these mean the opposite of what you think they mean, and I'll show you why later this week. Do you know what Jesus' favorite title for himself is, if you were to talk to him personally? Son of man. So people come along and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You're betraying an ignorance of biblical language. I'll explain it later this week. When Jesus says, son of man, speaking Aramaic, which was his language, he's quoting Daniel, which was written in Aramaic, where Daniel said, the son of man goes to the ancient of days and receives a king. Jesus saying, I am the son of man. I am God, is what Jesus is saying when he says son of man. I just want your ears to lock onto that. It's not until the New Testament, when Jesus is ministering, uh, that demons come out and humans begin to recognize who Jesus really is. He is God. And when demons and humans recognize that, the demons and the humans begin to call Jesus the Son of God. That's that's the term you would use, right? You wouldn't use Son of Man if you were talking about Jesus. He's the Son of God. And, And really, from the ministry of Jesus forward, Son of God is what we call him when we're referring to the second person of the Trinity. Is everybody with me? Everybody with me? And when we say Son of God, what do we mean? God. Right? When they said Son of God in the Old Testament, it's a reference to Israel, my firstborn. It's a reference to Joseph. It's a reference to uh, Solomon. It's a reference to men. When you say Son of God, what you mean is second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God's Son. All right, just want to be sure. I'll explain it more. It's quite confusing, isn't it? Jesus now takes the disciples. It's going to matter in a minute. Jesus takes the disciples now after this confrontation with the Pharisees. They get in a boat. They sail over here. They go to a vacation resort. This is a great sermon, isn't it? Going to a vacation, and everybody should be like Jesus, right? Uh, getting ready for spring break. They went to a vacation resort. They sail across the Sea of Galilee and go up to the northern part. When we're there uh, in a few months, I'll take you guys to the scene that we're about to preach about this morning and show you exactly, exactly this setup. This is private time. There are no crowds. He's just pressed by thousands of people wherever he goes. So he says, now he, they don't get it. Jesus is saying, in just a few days, I'm heading to Jerusalem, my final journey, where I'll be crucified and I'll be buried. No one's understanding what he's setting up. 
So before this all begins, the journey to Jerusalem, which we'll start shortly, Jesus says, I want to take my disciples and I want to go spend some private time with them on vacation. And that, and that's, that's, when you really realize what happened, you realize Jesus is such a nice guy. I mean, so compassionate, so loving towards his disciples. He, he knows they're going to be really shaken up, so he wants to go spend some real quality time with them. There are no crowds here. So let me describe what this, it's called Caesarea Philippi in, in your Bible. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 13. You guys just throw this on the screen. Caesarea Philippi is what the Bible calls it. Uh, the ancient name for this town was Ponyas. Today it's called Banyas. And it's in north, uh, it's in north, north a little bit east, but it's of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Mount Hermon is rising up to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you guys will be shocked to see that Mount Hermon may have snow on it even in May when we get there. Even in June when we get there, sometimes it has snow year-round on Mount Hermon. And because the altitude is high up here, it's much cooler. I mean, Israel's blazing hot like Texas. And so a lot of people, when they wanted to do a vacation getaway, they'd go up to Caesarea Philippi, Ponyas, Ponyas, this place. And it's like going to Colorado in the summertime. Uh, it's a Greek city, not a Jewish city. It's like the Decapolis. It's like those cities we talked about where the demoniac was from. They're, ma they're not Jewish cities based on Jewish religion. They're Greek cities, and you can find idol temples there and, and idols in these cities. The town gets its name because of these uh, Greek Gentiles who live there, and uh, they had shrines, uh, temples to the god of Pan, and uh, because Pan was in Greek mythology born in a cave, there's a big cave here on the side of the cliff uh, that you guys will see in a few months. And in that cave, in the old days, there's a, a river that ran underground in the cave. Water was flowing. And uh, they said, this is the cave of Pan. They attached the Greek god Pan to this cave with the mythology and all. And so the citizens of this city built a big ornate gate over the, in, the mouth of the cave and they had a big sign there that said this is the gate of Hades this is the gate to the underworld that's kind of ominous isn't it uh, but this city is kind of like Las Vegas it's a it's kind of like Denver Estes Colorado it's a big vacation spot and uh, it's uh, Gentile dominated and in this city is the gate of Hades Jesus says, let's go get some quiet time. There's a river flowing. There's trout swimming in the water. I mean, it's Estes Park, Colorado, okay? It's their version. Anyway, the disciples have witnessed all the miracles of Jesus up to now in the ministry. They've seen him walk on the water. They've seen him feed the thousands. They've seen him now raise the dead. Remember the little girl, little lamb, it's time for you to wake up. They've seen all of this. And Jesus' whole ministry has been trying to get his disciples to really get who he is. So he brings them up to the gate of Hades for their final exam. And imagine testing day at the school. And here's the backdrop, the gates of Hades. And it almost thinks you better get your answers right or you're going in. You know what I'm saying? And so he takes the disciples up there to the gate of Hades and says, Okay, boys, it's final exam time. Are you ready? And this is the journey you and I are about to go on. Matthew 16, 13, he asked his disciples, question number one for final exam, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus referring to himself by God title. Who do the people think Jesus is? What is the people's 
opinion of Jesus? Question number one on your test. And so in response, the disciples said, oh, we got this one. We know this one. We've got the answer to this one. His disciples said there are three, maybe four answers to this question, Jesus. Three definite answers and maybe a fourth to the question you have asked. Here come the answers. Matthew 16, 14. They replied, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah. Uh, some say that you are Jeremiah. And then some say maybe one of the other. Pro- three definite answers with a possible fourth. That is what the people's opinion of you is. Now let me just unpack that quickly. Some say you're John the Baptist. Why would people say that Jesus is John the Baptist? Well, because that was a popular opinion put forth by Herod Antipas, the ruler of southern Israel, the ruler of Judea. Herod Antipas uh, uh, was very familiar with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had told King Herod, you better quit sleeping with your sister-in-law and made a big deal of it out in public. And so obviously, Herod Antipas knows who John the Baptist is. He's already been insulted publicly by him and told to repent. And to to make matters worse, uh, Herod Antipas had a you know, a a troupe of exotic dancers, let's call them that. And uh, his favorite exotic dancer, uh, uh, he was so enraptured with her beauty uh, as he said, listen, you you just got to dance for me tonight. And she said, I will, King, but uh, let's let's barter a little bit. And she said, uh, I want to ask for something. He said, you ask for anything you want up to half the kingdom and I'll give it to you. I just want you to perform. And so she did perform and evidently she performed well sweet young lady and uh, she said now here's my request I want the head of John the the severed head of John the Baptist given to me on a silver platter sweet young lady you'd probably like to have her for dinner she said I want you to chop a man's head off who's a preacher and prophet of God put his head on a silver charger and I want you to give it to me as a gift now it raised all kinds of questions like what are you going to do with that you're going to display that in your living room Sarah when you get it I mean, what, you know, what is a conversation piece, you know, there in the office at work. What are you going to do with the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter? The point was, John the Baptist had been preaching repentance. God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And they didn't like his message. And so this young lady had been told by her mother, actually, you go in there and let's see if we can get the prophet killed through your skills uh, on the dance floor. And so when Jesus came along, after, they, after Herod had killed John the Baptist, Suddenly, Jesus is still preaching the same message of repentance. The kingdom of God is here. And suddenly, miracles are being done, and people are being raised, and all these rumors are, are, are sweeping through the country about this prophet named Jesus. And, and, and Herod's up in the, the palace and saying, oh, man, that guy, I chopped his head off. He's been resurrected. I mean, this is the exact same message, exact same modus operandi. He's calling the people to, 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 to up. And he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected because he had murdered John the Baptist. And because the king, King Herod, held this opinion, it got to be very popular among a lot of the Jews. So when Jesus said, who people say, I am in the Jews, the disciples say, oh, people think you're John the Baptist resurrected. That's why they thought that, because of Herod Antipas. Some think you're Elijah. Some people think you're Elijah. Why would people think that Jesus is Elijah? Well, easy, because I just took you through a whole study of the Old Testament. And when you get to the very last page of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi is going to make some final remarks. And then we're going to have 400 years of silence until God 
brings John the Baptist and Jesus onto the stage. But the last remarks of the Old Testament are made by a prophet named Malachi. And here's what Malachi said on the closing lines of his writing. See? I will send you the prophet of Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Well, so the people weren't expecting Jesus. They were expecting Elijah. Does that make sense? When the Old Testament ends, we're like, okay, Elijah's coming. Uh, Looks like Elijah's coming. So we'll be looking for somebody like Elijah. And most of the Jews who read this prophecy thought that not somebody like Elijah. They thought Elijah was going to be resurrected. Some, some, somehow reincarnated, resurrected, a second coming of Elijah the prophet. And so they thought, well, maybe Jesus is... And really, that's John the Baptist that that's speaking of, not, not Jesus. And we can talk more about that later. Their third answer the disciples gave is some people say, you're Jeremiah. Why would people think Jesus is a resurrected Jeremiah from the Old Testament? Well, that's... Very easy. There's two ways, two big ways that Jesus and Jeremiah are very similar. Let me give you the two ways. Number one, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Number two, Jeremiah was bitterly opposed by the religious leaders in his day. Well, that sounds a lot like the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? Like Jeremiah, Jesus had compassion on the sick and the hurting. Uh... Like Jeremiah, Jesus had so much compassion on people. He felt their hostility in a, pre, in a personal way. Jesus had such a burden for Israel. His heart was heavy. He cried for them. He pleaded with them to, to believe. And he knew that their rejection meant a big destruction. He knew the implications of their rejection. And, and his heart was so heavy. So Jesus' entire ministry was one of constant conflict and opposition with the religious leaders of Israel. So naturally, when people saw that, and they knew the book of Jeremiah, they're like, wow, this is like very similar, eerily similar to the way Jeremiah acted and the way Jeremiah was treated uh, when we read back in, in our Bibles. So a lot of people, Jesus, think maybe you're Jeremiah, resurrected somehow. All right, Jesus is ready to ask him question number two. The disciples' opinion of Jesus. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Okay, boys, the crowds have their opinions. But you, I want to know from you now. What is your opinion? What are you guys believing about me? So naturally, when you ask an open question to a group of disciples... Peter is going to be the one to jump up and answer. Okay? We all know that. So Peter jumps up and answers for the other disciples. Let me just say this, and maybe I can speak more about it in the podcast. Peter is always pictured not as a ruler of the other disciples, but as first among equals. Does everybody understand this term, first among equals? He, they're nobody more powerful, less powerful. There's no big boss among these guys. They're all equal. But if somebody's going to speak for the group, it's always going to be Peter. First among equals. That's what we call that. That's the term for that, okay? So now Peter speaks, first among equals, verse 16. Simon Peter says, I got this one. Who do we believe you are? I got this one. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, 
All of this has to be translated in, they're speaking Aramaic, it's being recorded in Greek, and that has to be translated into English. Okay? So I'll, I'll see if I can walk you through. You are the fulfillment of God's prophecies, you're the Messiah. When Peter says Messiah, what he said, what's recorded in Greek, Christos is the word in the Greek manuscript. You are Christos. It means Messiah, the anointed one, the one we have heard of, the one we have been looking for, the one God promised to send. When Peter says you are the son of God, he doesn't mean a man. This is how the title gets changed now. He means second person of the Godhead. We believe you are God manifested in the flesh. Now let me ask the congregation a question. Peter's kind of dense. Mostly, when you read about him, he's kind of slow to learn. Where did Peter get this information? We don't have to guess because the scripture tells us. Verse 17 now. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now that's Peter's real name. On his birth certificate, it says, Shimon bar Jonas. That's what his birth certificate says. Shimon Bar or Johannes, something like that, gets translated as Jonah. Shimon, Simon, is his name in Hebrew. Jesus is renaming him. Peter is not a name that people go by in Israel, not even a name the world even knows. This is not a name, is what I want you to know. Jesus is not saying, you know, this is, I'm going to name you after somebody famous. Now, there is nobody named this. Uh, and if your name is Peter, your last name is Peter's, uh, it comes from this because Jesus invented this right here. Okay? It's not found historically. So the guy you know of is Peter. His real name is Shimon, Simon. And you'll see him called Simon Peter or Peter or Cephas. He's got a bunch of names. But anyway... He gets the name Peter right here from Jesus. Now watch what Jesus does. Peter, what's your proclamation? You are Jesus, son of God. Watch the word play that's happening. And Jesus says, okay, and you are Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Shimon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This what? This understanding, this enlightenment that you have inside of you, that you know that Jesus is the anointed Christ, the Son of the living God, that is not something somebody can convince you of in an argument. That is not something a preacher can preach you into. That's something supernatural that God does inside your mind and inside your heart that brings you to open your mental eyes and ding, the light goes off and you're like, oh, Jesus is God who has been manifest to us in a human body on this earth. So we call him the Son of God. He is Christ, the Messiah. Don't let the synonyms confuse you. He's who he's claiming to be. Jesus said, good for you. Because I've been trying for three years to get you guys convinced of this. I've walked on the water. I fed the thousands. I raised the little girl from the dead. I, I mean, finally, the traction has started now, and the gears have engaged, and now you guys are catching up. took three years. You know, when I'm reading this, I'm saying to myself, I need to learn, Bobby, you need to learn to be more patient with your congregants and your disciples. It took these guys three years to get this through their heads. We need to be patient with one another. 
If there's another person you're trying to disciple and they're kind of slow, I'm not saying mentally slow. I'm saying if they're slow at comprehending the working of God. We need to be a little patient with that, okay? I get frustrated with sometimes with my guys overseas. I'm just like, guys, come on. Blah, blah, and I'm, I'm giving them a good cheerleading session. And then all of a sudden they'll send something in like this. And I'm like, look, we just got to be patient. We got to let things work. You know, not everything happens on our timetable, okay? And so he's like, all right, Peter, good for you. You got it, man. And, and you are, Simon, son of Jonah, this was revealed by God working in your life. Peter, you've made your proclamation about me. Now I'm going to make my proclamation about you. Look at verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. Okay, you're going to call me the son of God. Normally I go by the son of man. But I understand what you're saying, Peter. I'm going to give you a new name right now. He just called him Simon Bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And Jesus says, now I'm going to make a proclamation. You are now Peter, not Simon. You are Peter. In Aramaic, when Jesus said this out loud, you are rock. That's what the word Peter means. You are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. He just named the guy Rock. Now, the only other Rock I know is Rock Hudson. But Simon Peter, anybody know anybody named Rock? Oh, I knew a Rocky once. I guess that's the same. Do we have any Rockies in the church? I don't think we do. No Rocks for sure. Do we have any Peters in the congregation this morning? Just the last name Peters is the only Peters we have? Not a very godly crowd, are you? Okay. Uh, so he names him Peter right here. And he said, now I want you just to know, the word Peter means rock it's literally what the aramaic rock and i call you rock you call me son of god i call you rock that's what's just happened and on this rock i will build my church now let me do a little splaining here i came from a tradition that opposed anything that had to do with the catholic church anybody here like that now if you're listening doesn't mean i hate all catholics and i'm saying the tradition i came from was against any and everything that even hinted of Catholicism. And my tradition was so against Catholicism that even when Catholics were right, they would go the other direction, which would make then my tradition wrong. Now you got it. So we would take passages that the Catholics may have uh, some strong beliefs about. We'd run completely the other direction and say, it can't mean that. It must mean something way over here. And the tradition I came from distorted this passage. I'll talk more about it in the podcast. But we distorted the meaning of this passage in exactly the opposite direction of, of the Roman Catholic Church. And the answer is somewhere in the middle. Right here is where the Roman Catholics look back to and say, see, Peter is the first pope. This is where it happened. This is their text right here. And this is where the fisherman is made the first pope of the universal church. And so they call it St. Peter's Basilica, and the Pope sits on the throne of St. Peter, and he speaks as an apostolic descendant of St. Peter, okay? Now, the, the Baptists and the Church of Christ and all the others see this, and they're like, blah, 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 and they just run the other direction and say, no, that's absolutely not what, what's happening here. But in doing so, now, he's not being made a Pope. That's 100% clear. He's first among equals, not superior over the rest. That's easy to, to discern from Scripture. But we can't go so far the other way that now we diminish what Jesus has just said about Peter. 
it is clear that Jesus has just said, your new name is Rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And you can't go through any gyrations to explain that other than the way I just said it. That's exactly what just happened. You are the Son of God. And you are Peter. You are Rock. And on this rock I intend to build my church. Jesus calls Simon Peter. It's a biblical renaming. Now I'm saying it that way because I want you to know that there are a lot of renamings in the Bible. This is not the first one. Anybody's mind flashing back to Genesis right now where a man named Abram, high father, and God says, no, your name is now going to be Abraham, father of many nations. And this princess, Sarai, is now going to be Sarah, this strong woman that we need her to be. And God comes to his grandson, Jacob, the con man, and God says, no, now your name shall be what? Israel. Oh gosh, you are a sharp Bible student. Israel. And uh, so biblical renamings are very important. And whenever there's a biblical renaming, the renaming always points to a future that God has for you. So in other words, when God says to Abram, you are Abraham, father of many nations, we know something's going to happen that has to do with that. That he's, God is saying, this is who you're going to be. And God... Uh, says i'm going to make you a father of many all right so when jesus calls simon by a new name and says you are rock you are peter you are rock and upon this rock i will build my church when he renames him it means whatever i just said has future significance for what we're talking about he absolutely jesus absolutely means that upon you and your leadership, I intend to develop my church. All right, you've made your declaration. I've made my declaration. Verse number 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. One more statement. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I was taught incorrectly about this as well. I have taught this incorrectly as well. I was taught that Jesus launched his church and the powers of hell were on the offensive assaulting the church. Matter of fact, you've taught this wrongly, even though you're not maybe a pastor. You've often said, oh, Satan's just attacking the church. Satan's just attacking. You know, we're just being attacked from every side. We're constantly under attack. Christians, that may be true that Satan does assault the church. So what does it say about God's army that you guys are sitting back on your heels letting him kick you around? Why is the church in a defensive posture? And I was taught that's the way it was. That's absolutely not what's happening in this verse. Jesus says, my church, by the way, ecclesia is the word Jesus speaks. It never means a building. Hear what I'm saying. When the Bible says church, it never means a building. We've got this wrong in our minds. Never means a building. The word church is actually the Greek word ekklesia. It means an assembly, a gathering of people. When I say church, I want you to hear us, people, because that's all the word ever means. You are Jesus' church. Amen? Not this. You are Jesus' church. The church is a living thing. You are God's temple, filled with the presence and power of God. 
And God is saying to Peter in this verse, we are the ones on offense, not defense. The church is to be on offense. Uh, Let me give you some choices and I'll let you exegete it for yourself as a theologian. Here's two possible teachings. A, Jesus' church are the people on an unstoppable mission. Uh, Gates are a defensive fortification. No one says, hey, let's build some gates and go march across the field and throw them at our enemy. Are you with me? Gates are something you build on a fortress to hunker down behind in a defensive position. Everyone agrees? Okay, just want to be sure we agree. So Jesus says, church, people, assembly, uh, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. It means the gates of hell can't withstand your offensive assault, people of God. You're going to be on offensive. Listen, we want Satan saying, dang it, that church just keeps winning these people to Christ and making disciples for Jesus. Why is the church always assaulting my people? <laughs> we, we want to hear the demoniacs cry out, Have you come to torment me before my time? Don't send me out of the land. And we're going to say, yeah, get out of here. Get out of Fort Worth. Get out of Keller. Get out of our homes. Get out of our schools. You demonic powers, get away from our children. Get out of our community. We banish you in the name of Jesus Christ. How about the church taking the bit between their teeth and getting on the offensive? It's hell's gates, it's Hades' gates, be careful with my word choice here, that are not going to withstand the church's aggressive push to make disciples when we are on God's mission and we are filled by the Spirit of God. It is Jesus' followers that are going to go behind Satan's strongholds and we are going to rescue people who he has captive and who he has bound and we're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're going to set them free that's where the church should be not hunkered down in a building waiting for the next blow to happen you should be out there delivering the blows spiritually to the other side we're going to bring the gospel to our family members who Satan has bound and set them free we're going to bring the gospel to our friends And let them find the truth. We're going to bring the gospel to our jailers and win them. We're going to bring the gospel to some Pharisees and win them. We're going to bring the gospel even to Roman centurions, book of Acts. And we're going to win the whole regiment of soldiers to Jesus Christ. You see, Satan has humans trapped behind gates, bound, captives. And somebody needs to come and set them free. Now, that could be what Jesus is saying. It's a good, preacher's good anyway, doesn't it? Or B, let me give you another answer. Maybe Jesus is saying, I'm going to put my church on a mission that cannot be stopped even by death. And death is pretty much our ultimate enemy here right now. It's about the worst you can do to someone, right? But I'm going to put my church on a mission that not even death can stop. Now, the old English Bible, somebody asked me about this this last week. I had a visiting family asking about KJV. Hope you're back with us. I, I, uh, w- many of us grew up in a KJV traditional church with, with the ancient 1600 Bible. The old English Bibles, like the KJV, uh, the problem with them is there's a lot of things we've discovered in 500 years. Isn't that a surprise? 
and a lot of technology and a lot of discoveries, and we realize now there's a bunch of mistranslations in some of the older Bibles. And the newer Bibles have corrected what is blatantly wrong with those Bibles. And I'll show you one of those right now. This is uh, this, this KJV. Yeah, KJV, I can see. And I say also unto you that you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the, notice the phrase, gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the problem with that translation is Jesus didn't say hell. And even the manuscript of Greek that this was translated from didn't say hell. The people who translated it said we need to make this word hell. We need to take Hades and translate it for the English-speaking people into the word hell. But it gave you all the wrong ideas when they did that. So what happened then is history comes along and the Bible we realize has been misworded in several places. And the modern Bible translations are looking at even more Greek manuscripts now. And they're saying it's not the word hell. In every manuscript it's the word Hades. So we're going to change that word to Hades. So the church understands what Jesus is really saying. Now the fundamentalist crowd cries foul. They said you've taken the word hell out of the, uh, out of the Bible. And you've done God a disservice. No, the word hell was never used by Jesus. Ever. In this verse. He said gates of Hades. Now let me make this clear. They are in Pontus at the gates of Hades. Where the Greek mythology gods are on display right there i think they know more about this than you and i probably know about it they're living it right there and what jesus is saying is uh, the gates of hades hades according to greek mythology was a place of the departed spirits it, it, it's the realm of the dead not a burning lake of fire the word hades in greek mythology means the realm of dead or place of departed spirits so let's get this right then if that's true that it should be Hades and not hell and that is actually what it says that has Jesus saying this that I'm gonna put my church on a mission that even death cannot stop and that would also be an accurate translation Matter of fact, he's going to die and rise again, and that's what the whole next scenes are about to be about. And even though he dies, it ain't going to stop what he set in motion. He's going to rise from the dead with victory over the grave. And even though they threatened to kill my followers for thousands of years, it will not stop the church. What I have set in motion is in motion. The kingdom of God has come upon the earth, and albeit it's like a mustard seed growing and spreading, it will never be stopped, not even by penalty of death. Well, that preach is pretty good too, doesn't it? You say, well, which is right? I don't know. A or B or maybe both. A and B. Now, Jesus gives his disciples something very important in the next phrase. Keys. Verse 19. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, kingdom of heaven does not mean heaven out there in outer space. Kingdom of heaven always means rule of God on earth. It's one of these phrases that means the opposite of what you think it means. Lord, your kingdom come. Where? On earth. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is God's rule 
being reestablished on planet earth the way it was in the original creation. So let me read. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now we got to listen fast. I only got about 10 minutes here. Why did Jesus give them keys? And what does keys mean? Now I only understood two possibilities uh, up until recently. A, keys are something to get inside a locked door. That's typically what we use our keys for, right? To get inside a locked door. So, you know, you're thinking, okay, I give you keys. The disciples are going to open door, a locked door and let people into heaven. That's what this must be. Or B, to lock a door that, so someone cannot get inside. That's also what you use the key for. To lock a door so nobody can get inside. All right? Uh, that's what a key is. And those are the only two possibilities I really ever understood in my old life. And I feel like God's shown me, really, the real answer, which is actually C, to assign stewardship of his church to these leaders. When he gives them keys, he's not actually asking them to lock or unlock. He's asking them to have custodial authority over his church. You are Peter. Upon this rock, you are a rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Here's the keys. Okay, let, let me see if I can unpack this for you. That functional authority that's been given to Peter and to the disciples, you'll see later, the functional authority of locking and unlocking is also called in the same verse, loosing and binding. Do you see that? It's paralleled to loosing and binding. It turns out that Jesus has given the disciples a functional authority as stewards over God's kingdom, and Jesus may even be quoting Isaiah chapter 22 verbatim right now. I think Jesus is quoting his old Bible to show them what he's doing. Watch this. Isaiah 22 verse 20. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him. And hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder... The key to the house of David. Watch this language. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now Jesus turns to Peter and says, Like this man in the Old Testament was given stewardship over the house of David, I'm going to give you stewardship over my house. Like they had stewardship over the kingdom of David, I'm going to give you now the keys they're not literal keys. Jesus didn't hand him a key. Are you with me? He's giving him verbal authority. Uh, I'm transferring authority to you guys to make decisions for my church. The steward, be careful what you're hearing now. The steward is not the owner. The steward has responsibility to administer the affairs of the owner. Peter, you're not the owner. You're not the boss of anything. You're the steward administrating the house of your Lord, and the Lord is 100% in charge. The binding and the loosing language reinforces that this is more of an administrative thing that's happening. This is a binding and loosing is a Jewish term for determining what is and what is not permitted. It's a Jewish term uh, that you would give to someone in charge and say, you're going to decide 
what's binding and what's not binding. And some rules were binding. And the soon-to-be leaders of Jesus' people, the disciples are sitting here, and this soon-to-be group of leaders are going to oversee a church that is about to go global in just a few pages. A church that's about to go multicultural. It's not yet, but it will. A church that will be faced with many, many decisions to make. And because of the explosion in growth and the crossing the cultural boundaries, there are going to be a lot of misunderstandings to clear up. There's going to be councils, there's going to be deliberations, there's going to be meetings. And these leaders are going to have to get together and work out the significant issues of Christian behavior. Now let me see if I can make it something you really can see in Scripture. These men are about to decide for the church what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And those decisions will be binding on the church. This is the book of Acts. Remember that heaven, kingdom of heaven, is code for God's rule. They are going to make binding decisions, and God's rule is going to be behind their decisions. Now, I want you to hear really clearly what I'm saying. It is not to be read from this that heaven will back and support the bad decisions that church leaders can make. Church leaders are not allowed to make bad decisions and say, well, I have heaven's authority, comply. No. Heaven doesn't back your bad decisions. We all agree on that? Okay, if I make bad decisions, expect the elders to come together and confront me on my bad decisions and say, that's a bad decision, let's see if we can correct this. Is that fair? Okay, I like that. I like that accountability. Uh, it is to be read that you are spirit-filled leaders and you're going to make decisions that God agrees with. It is to be read that you're going to seek the will of God and make the decisions that God wants you to make for his church. These guys are being given administrative roles in God's soon-to-launch church. And they're to make the decisions that Jesus would make where he's standing there himself. Which he's not going to be because he's going to ascend to heaven after the resurrection. So I'm going to let you guys make the decisions for my church. And I know because you're my disciples and you're going to be filled with the Spirit, that you're going to seek my counsel and you're going to make the decisions that heaven wants you to make. Now let me just say this to even our leaders. This is an incredible responsibility. This should not be taken lightly. And one of the major mistakes that most churches are making that we're coaching is they have no, no uh, proper way to decide who should be a church leader and who shouldn't. Uh, they're not electing people that are mature. Uh, that are that are that are sound in the word of God and it's a, it's a big 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 problem in the following pages of your Bible you're just about to go to the book of Acts and they'll see how these men especially Peter made decisions for the church decisions about Gentiles about women and about slaves being equal partners in Jesus church you're going to see how these leaders condemn other people who preach another gospel, a false gospel, and they confront them and say, no, that doesn't go here. You will see how these leaders defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ and step forward and say, no, you guys got the resurrection wrong. We are eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and we'll tell you how things really went down. And if a false teacher shows up at a church 
and starts to divide the congregation and change the mission of the church and change the message of the church, then these God-ordained leaders will say, no, no, we're going to confront you on your false teaching. And what happens in the opening pages of the book of Acts is Peter, the rock, stands up as the spokesman for God's church and he begins to preach to a very large crowd of people, Acts chapter 2. And he starts leading those people to believe in Jesus Christ, the very people who have crucified Jesus Christ. 3,000, 5,000, and when these disciples got filled with the Holy Spirit, they went on the offensive and just in those opening pages snatched 8,000 people out from behind those gates. 8,000 people start coming to Christ and are believing on Jesus Christ and are added to the kingdom of God. Now watch this. This is just ironic. And at the same time that Simon Peter is preaching and leading the church and winning all these people to faith in Jesus, he's still a racist. He's doing good work for God, but he has some personal growth still. I'm not condoning his racism. Don't get nervous. I'm saying even though God is using him for a good work, he got some growing up to do. Okay? And all the while he's preaching and leading people to Christ in the first few pages of Acts, in the next few pages of Acts, God is confronting Peter and saying, okay, you're doing a good job on the preaching and the evangelism and the gospel side. Now let's see if we can work on your racism, Peter. Let's see if we can work in your heart. I want to change your mind about racism. And so you see, Peter had this narrow view that God was only for the Jews. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to Peter and say, Peter, even though you're the rock leading the church, even you've got it wrong on this issue. Let's get your head and your heart in line with heaven so that, see, this is the right way the church should work and leadership should work and Christianity should work. Those people who are leading the church ought to have their head and heart aligned with heaven. And, and sometimes we can get it wrong. And the Holy Spirit needs to work in our hearts and we need to be listening to the Holy Spirit if we've got it wrong. And we need to have the courage and the humility to come out and say, I got it wrong, I'm going to get it right. And so now Peter in his racism is at Simon the Tanner's house in the city of Joppa. And the Holy Spirit comes down and begins to speak to him and says, Peter, we've got to get you past your racism. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Remember the sheet with all the unclean animals in it? Peter's like, I don't eat oysters and catfish. And God says, you don't know what you're missing. Some pork gravy covered on those biscuits and yeah. You don't know what you're missing, Peter. Here's the big deal, Peter. If I've blessed it and I've called it clean, you're not allowed to call it unclean. And we are no longer talking about food, Peter. We're talking about people. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Peter, can you come to the door? There's two guys here to see you. And Peter goes to answer the door. And there's two Gentile men standing at the door. And they say, we've been sent here. We are servants of a Roman centurion. Enemy number one. We are servants of a Roman centurion, and we want to know the gospel. We want to hear the gospel. We've heard about this Jesus. We want to know who he really, we want to answer the thesis question, who is Jesus? But we need information. We need the gospel. Will you come down and talk to a group of Gentile Roman soldiers who killed Jesus? Maybe the very men who killed Jesus. 
Are you with me? The guys you were hiding from in the upper room behind locked doors, scared for you, they want you to come to their house and talk to them about Jesus. You talk about the ultimate lesson on racism. Jesus don't mess around, man. He's going to send Peter to the killers, okay, who want to know about Jesus. And so Peter says, well, God just told me to go, so I guess we'll work on my racism. And Peter goes with them, and they go from Joppa to Caesarea. I'll take you both places in a few months. They go to Caesarea on the sea. It's where the Roman soldiers are all stationed in the, in the uh, garrison there. And he goes into the house of Cornelius, the centurion, ru, uh, so, uh, commander of a hundred. And his entire Italian regiment is there. Could be the very people who put a spear in Jesus' side. Could be the very men who stretched his hands and drove the nails. And Simon Peter said, Jesus can even save these people and wants to. God, you're showing me something. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is admitted into the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of background, past sins, regardless of eye shape, regardless of hair color, regardless of DNA. If they come by faith in Jesus Christ, you're admitted into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You get the thesis question right about who Jesus is, God's going to let you into his kingdom. And more than that, to them who believe, he gave the right and the privilege to be called the sons and daughters of God. And Peter is looking at his potential brothers and sisters in Christ now in that room. And he preaches the gospel and they get saved. And Peter then is about to do the biggest thing that ever happened to the early church. Peter goes back up to Jerusalem and tells all the rest of the guys, Okay, God told us to make decisions and I'm kind of the first among equals and here's my decision. Here's what just happened to me down at Joppa. God spoke to me. I led all these Roman soldiers to Christ. I've already dealing with the Samaria thing where, I'm, where they're coming to Christ. And here's my judgment for the church. God lets anybody into his kingdom who comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So let it be written. So let it be done. That is the policy of the church of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a good policy to you? Do you think that's the policy that God wanted installed in the church? Now some people will say to me, well that's not in the Bible anywhere. In, in other words... When Jesus was here, he never, never wrote that down and told them that. No, he didn't. You know what he did? He did something far better. He empowered them to make the decision for themselves. This is exactly the decision that God wanted for his church, but he wanted them to make it. Jesus did not tell them to relax all the Jewish rules for the Gentiles. He empowered the disciples to make a decision that relax circumcision and diet and dress code and socializing with unclean people. All of those rules needed to go away. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. Peter and the people with the keys administrating the church stood up and said, this is not Judaism and those rules do not apply in the assembly of Jesus Christ. It's binding now. Well, praise God. What's binding is actually what liberated us. The rules of Judaism do not apply and the writings from the Acts to the book of Revelation are the historical record of how the church of Jesus developed into a multiracial multicultural diverse equality practicing assembly that reflects properly the rule of God the rule of heaven upon earth well a lot has changed in 2,000 years would you agree with that lots changed in the last five but a lot's changed in 2,000 years. So we've got some decisions to make this morning before we go. 
Okay. Did the original apostles make every administrative decision the church would ever need for the rest of human history? Or B, do contemporary elders still have the authority to continue making administrative decisions for the church of Jesus Christ? Now this is where the rubber meets the road for the modern church, especially for the Methodists right now, especially for the Southern Baptists right now. Here's where the rubber meets the road. The church is going to have to make some decisions in the future. Our church is going to have to make some decisions. As the Baptists go on a tirade to crucify women leaders in churches, we're going to have to make some decisions. The church is going to be faced with a lot of things that still need to be decided. Now, I want to be on the record here. My time is done. I believe that special weight should be given to what the original apostles decided. We need to take that very seriously and not be flippant about that. And that needs to be binding where it applies. And it almost always applies. But I also believe there are still decisions facing the church that holy men and women of God can make who are filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, our elders are here this morning. Let me speak to you elders on behalf of the church family. Not as the pastor, but as a representative of the church, let me speak to our elders this morning. You have incredible responsibility. You are not ruling over God's people. That is not the role we have put you in here and that God has put you in. You're commissioned with the responsibility of following the Spirit of God and the Word of God as stewards who have a key to God's administrative kingdom here. Not rulers, Holy Spirit and Word of God followers. And modern elders shall not say, heaven has endorsed our decision. Modern elders shall say, we need to decide according to the rule of heaven on this decision. We need to make the decision for God's assembly that would align with the heart of God and the will of God. And by the way, those are the elders that you have. I'm not scolding them because there's a problem. Those are the elders you have. Uh, you've been sitting for a while. I'm going to ask you to stand together, stretch your legs. I have two minutes of, of closing. Just stand and stretch your legs and let's get ready for a time of response. Let me ask you the final question in the I mean, the gates of Hades are not here, and you're not, like, being scared to go in. But here's the final question. It's a personal question. What is your personal opinion? Not what does Peter believe, and what does James believe, and what does Bobby Harrell believe. What is your personal opinion about Jesus Christ? You say, I don't want to answer that, Pastor. The answer is unavoidable. You have to answer it. You say, well, I'm not going to test. Yeah, you are. Sooner or later, you're going to have to answer the question, who is Jesus? And if this morning you've got this understanding and this peace that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of Man, which really means the Son of God. He's God come to express and reveal himself to humanity. If you have that understanding, like Peter, you are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
then I want you to know if you understand that, God's already worked a miracle in your life. You did not come to that understanding because of somebody's great arguments from a platform. You came to that understanding because God has been working in your life. Listen, if nothing else this morning, you ought to fall on your knees and say, God, maybe I don't realize often enough that you're working in my life and you're bringing me to the right answers. Your, your power and your spirit have brought me to understand who you are. And maybe it's in a service like this that you need to somehow publicly confess that Jesus Christ is your King and your Lord and your Savior. I don't mean with a microphone. I mean by your actions somehow. Uh, telling a neighbor, getting on your knees and telling God. So, somehow we need to constantly be saying to Jesus, I want the world to know that I belong to you and that you are not just Savior. Jesus didn't just come to forgive you of your sins. He came to be the Lord and King of your life. He's 100% in charge and he's calling the shots. And when you get that right, it's real easy to understand. Now God gives you the responsibility to make good decisions. I'll give you my spirit and I'll give you my word and I'll give you a community. And together the community of Jesus Christ can get the right decisions and the right answers. Let me ask you a very personal question. Is he king for you personally? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's pray together. Father, Father God, remove the blinders now. Remove the rationalizations and remove our stubbornness. God, uh, help us to see you who you really are. God, help us to have the humility to bow before you this morning and say, You are my King, you are my God. And on your knees this morning, proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, enlighten our understanding. God, without your help, we can't get to the right answer. And every family here, every individual here, Lord, is facing so many decisions about career and home and life and health and relationship. And even on many spiritual levels, God, we're facing so many questions. Holy Spirit, enlighten us so that we come to the right answer to our decisions. Father, I've done the best I can do. To say to your people what you said to me this week. in your hands now you do in our hearts what only God can do while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed maybe you need to come and kneel at an altar maybe you need to make an altar out of your seat this morning somehow maybe you need to find let me just say this to you. Somehow you need to respond to God. And I can't tell you how to respond. So difficult for me in this moment. You must respond to God. Whatever he's speaking into your heart this morning, say, yes, Lord, I hear you. I hear you. Maybe it's about making good decisions for your family. Maybe it's about yielding your life to control of God. 
Maybe it's about still some misunderstanding about who Jesus is. Maybe it's about you've been in such a defensive posture all your life as a Christian that's that your default position now. And you realize it's time for you to learn offense. We're going to get you off the defensive side of the ball and get you on the offensive side now. And maybe you don't know the place. Maybe you don't know what to do on the offensive side. Be a disciple and then go make disciples. Say to God this morning, God, maybe I need to get off the defense and get on the offense. God, maybe our whole church needs to get off the defense and on the offense. When's the last time you fell on your face and said, God, give us Keller and Fort Worth and Roanoke and Haltom City for the kingdom of God? God, I drive a flag into the soil and I say, this place and these people are yours. And with every ounce of energy that we have, God, with your help, we're going to take this city for Jesus Christ. There are tens and hundreds of thousands of adults out here in their 30s, 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, who are children of Baptists and children of Church of Christ and offspring of the Methodists who are not in church anywhere. Well, what are we as a church going to do about that? Just keep coming to church on Sunday and pretend like it's not a reality? Some of you are losing your own children. Get on the offense. Drive a stake in the ground and say, no, God put me here in Fort Worth, Texas. That means I'm a light shining in the darkness of Fort Worth, Texas. You say, well, it's a very churched area. It is. And it's also a very backslidden Christian area. You won't be able to walk two steps without running into a non-churched believer. Let's reclaim it for the kingdom of God. Before we go, let me just ask you to do one thing. If, if you're not willing to respond for your own self this morning, would you be willing to pray for your elders this morning? Their decisions are going to be binding upon you. Do you think it's important they get it right? Do you think it's important that they get in touch with heaven before they start deciding things for the rest of us? I do. That's Tommy Thompson, and that's J.D. Rudder, and that's Alan Smith. That's Susan Harold. That's Jeremy McNair. Those are your elders. Their decisions are going to be binding. Father, we just pray for our elders right now. Lord, for our deacons, for anyone who has a leadership role in the church, Lord. Not that we would rule well, Lord, but that we would align well with heaven. Lord, that any decision we ever take would be your decision. Like that decision Peter made to get rid of racism in the church. Lord, even today, a lot of churches didn't follow Peter. They're still segregated. But Lord, it was the right decision. It was the right decision he made to integrate the church and let it cross so social lines and religious uh, backgrounds. And Lord, thank you for the decisions of the apostles. Lord, thank you for inspiring them to get it right. And Lord, thank you for all the people who passed faith to us. Lord, as we look back, we realize they made a lot of good decisions and they made a few bad ones. Lord, I pray that you would help our leaders to get it right. And by right, I mean may they be right with you.
led by your spirit, aligned with your word. God, I want to pray for grown children who have gone out of our households. God, I pray that you would give them personal revival. Whatever happens in the coming days, none of our grown children would walk away from their faith in you. Lord, they'd be passionate followers of Jesus Christ. God, we care about them. We love them. Many are off at university right now. Some are starting their careers. Some are out there just floundering with neither career nor school going. God, we care about them, and we pray that wherever they are this morning, you would put your arm around them, and you would love them, and you would speak, and you would draw them back into your fold. God, there are many people here that have grown kids with families. Those grown children that have their own kids now, they're not in church. God, we know, we know they're missing so much that you have for them. God, would you help us to reconnect with them? God, give us a, a way to connect with those who have fallen by the wayside. Lord, we are not happy about that. We know you're not happy about that. We believe the church should take up its mission of reclaiming your people and bringing them back. God, for every one of us in this room who as young men and women and teenagers made some terrible decisions, God, you were so patient with us and so loving and so merciful. And God, you dealt gently with us and you brought us back and you forgave us and you gave us a new start. Thank you for that. God, some are trying to a restart on a new marriage. God, thank you for your patience. Give us happy marriages. God, some are trying to build families again. God, bless us. God, I want to say on behalf of this congregation this morning that we love you. And we believe that you are the Christ. the Son of the living God. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name.